uh, you started receiving messages on Facebook from ISIS. Do you continue to receive messages, threats, that sort of thing? Yes, so it's like it started to be like a normal routine. So like sometimes to get up without these messages, I feel that there's like something strange. I miss them, something. So it started to be like kind of breakfast. So I need like to have my breakfast daily. So these messages like helping are helping us like to do work. So if I forgot that I'm like, I need to do something, I read this message, I remember I need to do some work because of this. It's an inspiration. Yeah. Welcome to the third episode of Global. I'm Sam Johannes, and along with... Sinclair Stafford. Today, we're talking about Syria, a country that unfortunately has been capturing the uh, the world's attention basically since 2011 uh, at the start of the, the Arab Spring and what has evolved into a bloody civil war in that country. Um, it's a very complex problem, lots of moving parts, a lot of interested parties, and hopefully throughout this episode we'll be able to unpack some of that for you and sort of make sense of what's going on there. Sinclair, how do you say Syria in Arabic? Syria. Syria. Okay, fair enough. Uh, in addition to that, Sinclair, what else do you think we need to know about Syria going going into this episode? What are some fast facts? <laughs> So first off, it has a very diverse population of 18.5 million people, of whom 90% are Arab, ethnically, um, while the other 10% are Kurdish, Armenian, and other groups. Um, Also diverse in terms of religious groups, um, we have 87% of the the population, which is Muslim, of whom 74% are Sunni Muslim, while 13% are Alawi, which is a Shia sect. We also have 10% Christians and 3% 3% Druze. And that's Druze, D-R-U-Z-E? Right. Okay. The name Syria is derived from the ancient Assyrians who ruled over northern Mesopotamia, the Fertile Crescent, and whose influence also extended over the Levant. Whenever I have a discussion with somebody about the Middle East, the term Levant comes up. What, what specifically does that define? The Levant is the area encompassing Syria, Jordan, Lebanon, and Israel. Ah, okay. So uh, what about Syria's economy? Well, not surprisingly, the economy has not done so well because of the war. As a whole, the entire country's economy has declined 62% from 2010 to 2014. That is absurd. Over half, oh yeah, almost two-thirds of the country's wealth disappeared in four years. Yeah, 50% unemployment and also 82, 82.5% of the population live below the poverty line. So clearly Syria is not doing very well because of the war. Um, Another interesting fact is that Damascus is thought to be one of the world's oldest continuously inhabited cities. Um, And it was actually uh, the capital of the Umayyad Empire, which was the first Muslim empire in the 600s. So it was literally the center of the Muslim world for a little while. And Damascus has actually been a a cultural center for, for many 
different epochs and eras. So That's fascinating. One of our guests on this episode was, without a doubt, the most poignant interview I, I've taken part in. Uh, you might not know his name, but Abdel Aziz Alhamza uh, is the co-founder and international spokesperson of the NGO Raqqa is Being Slaughtered Silently, which is a... a NGO that serves as a platform for basically citizen-driven journalism inside Raqqa, the de facto capital of the Islamic State. Um, they do things like aggregate uh, surreptitiously collected video clips uh, from from the streets around Raqqa showing the rest of the world what, what it's actually like living under ISIS-controlled government. Uh, he is, without a doubt, the bravest person I have ever met. Aziz, welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much for taking the time to talk with us. You're welcome. Uh, we also have another guest who's Syrian. His name is Hassan Hassan. He is from eastern Syria and is uh, currently works at the Tahrir Institute for Middle East Policy in Washington, D.C. Um, he's also the author of New York Times bestseller, ISIS, Inside the Army of Terror. Thank you for having me on. We also talked with Georgi Todorovic, IRI's very own uh, current program director for our Syria and Lebanon programs. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Georgie's an 18-year veteran of IRI, started working with us in his native Serbia with our program there. In his 18 years at IRI, Georgie has worked on a multiplicity of programs, including Serbia, his, his native land, uh, Mongolia, Zimbabwe, Tunisia, Iraq, Burma, the list goes on and on. Awesome. Let's get started. So, Georgie, could you tell us briefly about Syria's history since independence from France? Well, Syria has a very long history, and the history since independence from France is just the little peak of a large iceberg. Since like 10,000 BC, right? Yeah, there are many, many places around this globe that uh, claim to be the cradle of the humankind, and I think Syria is one of those places that can genuinely call itself the cradle of the mankind. A lot of long, long, long history has been going on there. However, the Syrian modern history is a history of political turmoil. It's a history of a country that has been on a crossroads between the East and the West. It's been uh, on one of the major trading routes between uh, Asia and Europe. And it has been uh, a part of uh, many empires that have changed uh, in in this region. Uh, Just the most recently, the Ottoman Empire. uh, And then following that, it went under the British, then the French control. The French troops left uh, Syria in 1946, although Syria officially gained independence uh, a couple of years before that. And uh, since then, uh, it was, uh, uh, again, a very, um, I would say, unstable history of uh, political turmoil. There was uh, political pluralism in the country. Then there were days when there were military governments, when there were uh, coups. Uh, several different uh, governments changed place since 1946 and then 1961 when uh, eventually the Ba'ath Party came to power in another coup. But that didn't stop the political turmoil because then inside the Ba'ath Party there were internal coups. Uh, And that all led to 1966 when eventually uh, the father of Bashar al-Assad, the current uh, self-proclaimed president of Syria, Hafez al-Assad, came to power in an internal Ba'athist coup. Before that, he was a minister of defense in uh, in the Ba'ath Party and in the Ba'athist government. And since then, Syria enters 
I would say, uh, very conditionally speaking, the period of more stability, at least internally. Could you tell us what the Ba'ath Party is? So the Ba'ath Party is the modern uh, pan-Arabic, I would say quasi-socialist political organization that was uh, founded in the countries in the Middle East. It sort of started in uh, former Transjordania and, uh, you know, in er er modern-day Iraq and in uh, modern-day uh, Syria. It was the political movement that was trying to unify uh, the Arab countries. It had the modernist idea of developing some sort of a secular, leftist, social democratic environment. Uh, it was also the movement that was working uh, during the, the uh, Cold War. It was much closer to the Soviet bloc than it was to the Western bloc. Uh, and uh, it was just uh, the revolutionary movement of the Arabs uh, who were just trying to modernize their states, and it was also very post-colonial, I would say, in many ways. What, in your estimation, would make Syria unique amongst its neighbors? Well, I would say that uh, Syria is... It has a long, long history of art, a long history of culture. It has an impressive culture that has been developing over all these like long centuries of history. Uh, I, I think actually a really interesting story is uh, that when uh, Tamerlank, who was one of the Mongol, Mongolian uh, Seljuk uh, conquerors, uh, occupied Damascus, he killed everybody and he destroyed the whole population except for the artisans. The artisans were taken to Samarkand, which was the capital of his empire, because again, that was what, what Syria at the time meant for the, for the world. So with, with the, the change of hands amongst many empires and long, long history, the, the government in Syria, the government's system, I assume, has changed dr drastically as well over that period of time. Could you sort of give an, well, an overview of that? The, <laughs> kind of the, the pre-Assad government. Yeah. Yeah, I would say that those governments were changing, but there is a long tradition of the Ottoman heritage. And that heritage is the, her the heritage of a strong state. Uh, I think that the French didn't change much in that way. They probably had some different values that they applied than, than the Ottomans. But again, at the time, the French rule was all about a strong state. And you have generations of uh, Syrians and other people in the region who were influenced by that, by that. And again, Syria was the country with a strong state. It was the country where the state was employing most of the educated people. It was the country where the state was the one who was in charge of things and who was telling you what you could and what you could not do. There were periods of more liberty, I would say, and those are the periods of a multi-party system and of the political pluralism. But those were very short and brief uh, I would say, points in the history compared to the one-party Baathist and then uh, at sometimes military uh, uh, control and military coups that that produced military governments in Syria. Assad sort of had an opportunity, the current Assad, had an opportunity to sort of avoid this whole thing by, by opening up, uh, you know, multi-party system, and, and he dropped the ball. Yes, and having spoken with many Syrian uh, currently opposition activists and members of civil society or political leaders, Many of them will tell you how there was this sentiment from basically from 2006 until the, the start of the revolution, how the, the young Assad will come in and he will introduce reform, how his Western education will, be, will lead towards more space for multi-party system, for civil society activism, for things like that. And again, it wasn't just their expectation, it was his promise. He was actually talking about it, and many people, I spoke with people from Dar Azor and from Raqqa, the areas that are now under a pretty terrible Daesh control, um, 
they were telling us how at first they were really, really excited about young Assad coming to power because there was a promise, but there was also more space. They were allowed to do more things than before uh, until just one day when they all started getting arrested by the by the ever-present uh, security service, the Muhabarat. Uh, and uh, that was sort of the disappointment that in many ways triggered the revolution that ended up being a war. Syrians are educated people. Syria was a modern country, uh, and it was a country that had I would say many windows to to the world, but also it was people were craving more uh, openness, more uh, just like seeing more how the rest of the world uh, is functioning and how it works. I think they through the uh, border with Turkey, I think they had some kind of an influence and some kind of a, a window to see the rest of the world. But I think that there was definitely a hunger among the people of Syria for more. And that was probably what I think led towards all these uh, changes in the country. So how did Assad come to power? He inherited his father. Uh, they were Syria is the country that holds elections, but these are the typical, uh, I would say, authoritarian countries' elections where 99.9% people vote for the leader and that's it. It reminds of, you know, former Libyan <laughs> or I would say Belarus and places like that. Um, and uh, Assad came after his father passed away. He basically inherited power. Uh, there was an older brother who was actually groomed to inherit uh, the position of leadership. And uh, uh, Basil, the older brother of uh, Bashar al-Assad, died in a car accident. Uh, he was the one who was, again, groomed through military. He was the one who was ever-present, very popular, I would say, within the Baathist uh, circles. Hassan, what was the pre-Civil War political situation like in Syria? How did the Syrian government operate, and what was the de facto type of government? I mean, before uh, Syria, as uh, other Arab countries, uh, used to be, uh, you know, uh, run by, obviously, uh, di- dictatorship, uh, very hard to... Uh, uh, for, for like uh, people to organize, civil societies to function, and so on and so forth. Uh, stability, though, was uh, obviously the uh, the currency that regimes uh, sold uh, to, to to people and made people uh, cling to these uh, you know to these regimes uh, before and after the Arab uh, Arab Spring. So, uh, and this is kind of for the one one of the biggest uh, selling points for the Assad regime for a long time. Syrians uh, pr- prided themselves with the security and the safety uh, they had uh, in their country. So, if you met a Syrian before the civil before the civil war, uh, they would always say, you know, we're the safest country in the world, although they've never been outside the country. Georgie. So, how much how much of uh, Assad's legitimacy was then based on just the ability to? send out, you know, militias to round up troublemakers, so to speak. and that's It was a mix. I, I think that in some years, Syrians were just living under the regime, not even hoping that things will change. Uh, it was also a mix of, uh, w- w- we should never forget that there were events in the recent hi- Syrian history that have divided the population a lot. Since late 1970s, there was a Muslim Brotherhood uprising happening in the predominantly Sunni areas of the country that uh, ended in a very bloody combat and final uh, struggle uh, in which about, again, estimates are between 20 and 40,000 people were killed in the region of Hama, uh, where Assad's military and Assad's militias went in and literally, like, completely terminated this this uprising in blood. 
ever since then, there was the underlining feeling and underlining sentiment that Sunnis were oppressed. But uh, again, in, uh, since Hama, there was that tension inside the country. Hassan, what would you say was the, the catalyzing factor, what really started the actual conflict in the Civil War? So the, the immediate cause was uh, that young people uh, wanted to uh, take to the streets and do what other Arabs uh, across the region did which is to rise up against the regime and say, uh, we, we demand change, we want uh, reform. And that continued to be the slogan for uh, young Syrians for many months, uh, probably the, for, the, for a whole year, uh, before they started to talk about a change of the regime, even though that, like some, of that, some of these slogans started to come up only because they were popular across the Arab world. But uh, really, people didn't want uh, regime change uh, in, in, the, in the beginning. People thought that there, uh, there has to be a real change, but they didn't think it was possible to change the regime, and they, uh, they were mostly demanding uh, uh, reforms. So this is where Aziz's story begins. Aziz, you were a biology student prior to everything happening uh, in your country. You, you indicated that you had originally gotten involved in 2011 uh, with the street protests um, uh, that originally sparked the, the Syrian civil war. What inspired you to, to be involved in that? So in the beginning when the revolution started in Syria, like first time when I saw like people are demonstrating in the street, I started to ask myself like why these people are demonstrating and when I checked up the news, I discovered that there was like a children who were shouting for like who were, who were like spraying the walls, something against the government, they didn't understand it. They watched it on TV like in Egypt, Tunisia, like in Arabic Spring countries. And the way how the Syrian regime with them, the reaction of the Syrian regime started like killing civilians, uh, and later on, like we started to think about many things, like free, like uh, like freedom, like express freedom, uh, human rights, all that thing, and we ended up that we don't have that thing in Syria. So we started to shout for freedom. I decided, like okay, like my father, the last generation, the one, the two, three, four before, they didn't do anything. So it's like our turn to make a change. We are in the twenty. First century and in that time, the Arabic Spring started to spread in the ter- in the area. So I decided to join these these demonstrations, like to change the situation in my country to the best. Uh, that was like the main reason why I joined like these demonstrations. Aziz, when you joined these protests, what were your short-term goals? So like this change the situation like in Syria uh, to defeat like first we were asking for freedom and when we found and when we saw like the way how the regime the government acted with the demonstrators by killing them we started to shout against them like to defeat the regime so what we wanted like to have like a democratic country like uh, a country where we can express our opinions uh, uh, our thoughts what we want to do like to have an elected President. Hassan, what caused the violence to start? When people started protesting, um, the regime reacted uh, with the instinct that this is an Islamist 
Islamist organized uh, protest movement uh, against them. Uh, the regime reacted uh, very aggressively against uh, protesters, and then people started to feel that they, in order for protests to to, to move uh, to to continue, they needed to uh, have some uh, armed people who either uh, scout the area. So when the regime uh, soldiers start coming into the, there's like a pre-warning. Um, uh, system there, and also to delay uh, the soldiers, and that uh, evolved over time and into a more uh, into an armed uh, insurrection across the country. Aziz, in the specific uh, the specific action of taking photographs with your phone and uploading them to social media and that kind of thing, you used that tool both as an anti-regime tool and an anti-ISIS tool. How did that? Would, did that just occur to you naturally to do? Yeah, actually, like when the demonstration started in Syria, like uh, the Syrian, like when the uprising, the revolution started in 2011, the Syrian regime like closed most of the media offices in Syria and they didn't, like the Syrian regime also didn't let most of the reporters from outside to come and cover the demonstration. So in that time, we ended up with like a local TV reporting about like uh, animals, like about bears, about the weather, why there were like demonstration all over the country. So we decided that we need like cover that thing to show the reality. Because like if you will see watch the Syrian regime TV channel, you, they will say that there is like no demonstration in the country. There is nothing at all. So we started to film these demonstrations, this uprising by our mobile phones and then a upload it like online and we started like to make like to upload it online and publish it in a, like a local coordination we did it like with some local people some local demonstrators in Raqqa to organize the demonstration to upload the videos to send it like to the tv channels to our like the people the media the international community about what's going on there how did you meet your colleagues? Did you know them already? I got arrested three, four times, and in the jail, it was like the best place to meet the people with the same ideas, with the same thought. The Syrian regime, like, maybe did that mistake. It helped us, like, to organize that demonstration better than before. So every single time when I got arrested, I meet new people, and when they released us, like, we meet outside and we organize something big. It's like going to activist school. That's interesting. Yes, that's very interesting. Hassan, how did ISIS then uh, gain its foothold in, in Syria? I mean, uh, so I come from eastern Syria. I saw uh, how ISIS and other groups uh, uh, came to, you know, uh, rose in, in, in these areas uh, in slow motion. Uh, so uh, it was really, uh, I think, the, the, the way to look at it, um, uh, to kind of maybe trace uh, the origins of the rise of groups like ISIS, is 2012. That's when uh, th- two things happened, extreme violence by the regime, uh, but also that uh, despite these massacres that were taking place, the international community didn't respond uh, to these uh, massacres. And people started to feel nobody cares about uh, Syrians and that the regime is given a free pass despite the rhetoric, despite what uh, the Americans and the Europeans uh, and the, the kind of the world said, say about um, uh, the Assad regime that uh, uh, Bashar Assad lost legitimacy and so on. So uh, people started to despair, uh, started to see that there are extremist forces uh, fighting effectively against the regime. 
there are militias uh, affiliated to the Assad regime that are committing massacres in the same way that would uh, would be familiar later in 2013 and 14 uh, when ISIS and groups like ISIS uh, became very prominent uh, in Syria. Did the Assad regime purposely release extremists into the opposition? Absolutely. I think uh, the you know in the in the 2011 when uh, Assad decided to release uh, prisoners uh, who were convicted being uh, you know extremists and and uh, so the Assad regime knew that these extremists would when they leave uh, the prison uh, they wouldn't go uh, take to the streets and demand uh, democracy and so on and so forth. They would he would. You know, he was sure that they would go and uh, try to uh, establish uh, organized uh, armed groups uh, to fight the Assad regime. That is so evil and so cunning at the same time. Just think about that for a second. The man, without firing a single shot, uh, weakened his opponents by releasing individuals who everybody knew were terrorists uh, to essentially undercut their, their momentum. And that, to turn the international community against them. Yeah, uh, by contaminating their image. So, yeah, he's okay with contaminating his entire country with people with extremist beliefs in order to serve his political ends. No, the Assad regime, uh, so, the, you know, Bashar Assad from the beginning, from day one, uh, he was saying what? He was saying, this is not a pro-democracy uh, protest movement. It's not an, a, a, a spontaneous movement to demand change. If it is, we are ready to uh, change. But this is an Islamist and jihadist organization, back, uh, uh, insurrection um, backed by foreigners who want to destabilize Syria. So he was selling that to outsiders and insiders inside Syria. So to what degree do you think that this sort of uh, this line of propaganda um, served to, to stymie the momentum that the Free Syrian Army had? Because for a while it seemed like there was broad international support for what this entity, the Free Syrian Army, and they were making some gains within the country itself. How did that that information, smoke and mirrors, sort of change that? Uh, so I think uh, all these factors um, led to a situation where, uh, you know, the outsiders started to become more skeptic about the Syrian opposition, uh, first because they were unable to uh, creative momentum uh, against the Assad regime, especially in the beginnings, where when extremists were not uh, did not yet uh, hold sway, and also the international international support for for this movement was uh, was kind of s- uh, slow to really uh, uh, make them a, a viable op- uh, alternative to the Assad regime uh, in, in the sense that they didn't uh, support them politically, they didn't support them militarily from the beginning in, in a significant way. Georgie, so could you give us a snapshot of the current situation on the ground? In a very simple manner of speaking, there is the Assad regime, uh, which is controlling Damascus, it's controlling the coastal region, which is the richest and the most developed economically region of the country. Uh, They are... uh, Currently, I say they have an upper hand in the fighting on the ground. Uh, But again, this is also the result of a direct military support from uh, Russia, from Iran, and uh, from Hezbollah militias from Lebanon who have taken direct part in fighting on the side of the regime. On the other hand, there are the rebels uh, who, again, we're we're talking, and and this is where I think there's a lot of injustice when people talk about Syria because there's this black and white 
sort of thinking about what's going on there. And rebels are usually labeled as being conservative or, or more Islamic or jihadist. Um, there are many, many different fighting groups that are fighting in the rebel uh, armed armed forces. Uh, one thing they all have in common is they're fighting against the Assad regime. And that is their primary objective and goal. Uh, and then again, you will probably meet and you will probably talk to people from all sorts of backgrounds, some of them very secular and very, very modernist, some of them very conservative when it comes to religion. But I think the rebels still control uh, a significant portion of the population, and this is not going to be you know, lost so easily as some people are expecting. Then finally, we are also talking about uh, Daesh, ISIS, ISIL, call them whatever you want. Uh, the terrorist organization that emerged in Syria uh, during the conflict. Uh, it controls large portions of the country, I would say, predominantly in the northeast and center, uh, like a desert region that borders Iraq in the eastern part of the country. So there are three sort of main, I would say, groups that we're talking about. Within this, there are many subdivisions, and they depend on ethnic, on religious, on historical uh, factors uh, that that are influencing events and that are influencing specific, I would say, freedom of or lack of it in the specific areas of the country. Um, so again, currently, uh, I would say that the rebels had the upper hand in the fighting until the summer of 2015, when they took uh, the province of Itlib in the northwest of the country from the regime, when regime was losing left and right and up and down throughout the country. But then the, um, I would say that the, the, the war has turned after Russians intervened. Uh, Russia came in with its air force, predominantly with its air force, and it started bombing indiscriminately the uh, rebel-controlled areas. I think it's also very, very interesting to look at their rhetoric about the war because they claimed that they went in to fight the terrorists, to fight Daesh, ISIS, uh, you know. And instead... Most of their activity and most of the attacks were against the Free Syrian Army about the moderate rebels. Uh, so basically they went in to support their ally Assad and not to necessarily destroy ISIS uh, as the priority that they claim they, they're going to do there. So um, the situation right now is uh, also one other important thing to know is that there have been multiple attempts at negotiation. United Nations uh, intervened. There were several special envoys. They all resigned because of the frustration of, with the process. Um, then there was Astana talks. Uh, there were Astana talks that were held recently uh, and that were organized by Russians and Turks. Sorry, Astana talks? It's the capital of Kazakhstan, where uh, Turks and Russians decided to take regime representatives and rebel representatives to hold talks about the truths. And again, we can talk about probably dozens of occasions when the truce was agreed upon and then broken by either, you know, one or the other side on the, on the, on the ground. Um, and the truce is usually used for a little arrest, but then also for uh, surprise attacks and for taking the territory uh, in a way that is very sneaky. But again, we're talking about war, and you know what they say, in love, war. Uh, All is fair. All is fair. There's no, there are no rules. Was the was the U.S. party to those talks as well? Uh, U.S. was marginalized in Astana talks. And again, we're talking about U.S. that has disappointed, I think, the rebels on many steps. Obama administration came in with a big promise that they never held. Obama also, I think, made the biggest mistake uh, 
in foreign policy, which was drawing the red lines, and then he allowed people to walk all over. A red line for us is we start seeing a whole bunch of chemical weapons moving around or being utilized. Uh, that would change my calculus. That would change my equation. Uh, Obama kept repeating that, uh, and nothing happened. Uh, the, in eastern Ghouta and in parts of uh, Syria, the gas was used against rebels. There were evidences, there were independent commissions. Everything was documented and proven, and yet America remained silent. So they read where the true red line was, that Obama was just not going to yeah, go they, past a certain amount of assistance. Well, first they called his bluff with walking over the red line. And then later on they figured that if he didn't react to that, they can probably do a lot more and he wouldn't react. Aziz, now that your organization, RBSS, is based outside of the country, how do you maintain trust with communities inside of Raqqa? First of all, we are like Subarno in the city. Like every single ISIS fighter knows RBSS. So the thing like we are known in the city and mostly we arrive to the point that like not only our colleagues who are inside, they are like RBSS. We arrive to a point that like many civilians are RBSS. RBSS, by the way, is an acronym for Raqqa is being slaughtered silently. We find like daily many messages from civilians who could like send some information, some photos, some videos from the city. And like we made like many double check about this news and it was like the and those news were like true. So we ended up have like a huge network. And for us, we are like the people who are like publishing that thing like online. So the, the people like mostly the community, they don't know me specifically especially who are living inside so they know rbss and they know that rbss is inside and outside so because this in-country network has sort of expanded organically are you not as worried about being able to to continue accessing information about what's going on inside the city the thing is the city is like a big city like from the city the countryside like Raqqa in general so it's like so hard sometimes to know what's going on in the other side of the city so why there is like no tv channels there is like nothing so internet is the only way to get all that information and our team is like all spread all of our the all of Raqqa, so it's easy to collect all this information. So instead of going to like 10 kilometers to check what's going on, even ISIS fighters, they check our page. One one theme that I I kept seeing coming up on your your English language website was the idea that Raqqa is a terror incubator and that this is this is a uh, an incorrect narrative. How is RBSS's work counteracting the narrative specifically that, that Raqqa is a terror incubator. When ISIS controlled the city, like the media, the international community, when they started to hear about Raqqa, they started to call it like the capital of ISIS, the capital of extremism. And like first when I left Syria, I went to Europe. When I told anyone that I'm from Syria and when they asked me where, I told them like Raqqa, they 
scared. So many people they got the idea that like all Raqqa people like are terrorists. So so many people they were scared from me. Not all the civilians are like terrorists. Not all Raqqa people are terrorists. Here I am like I'm not a terrorist. We started to publish like many like many information about like the local who joined ISIS. And until now the number like the percent of the local who joined ISIS is like less than one percent, which is nothing. So mostly they are like foreigners. They are like from other cities, from Iraq. So the thing, most of the civilians, they didn't join ISIS. And in the same time, they are living like in the worst conditions in the world. Many several war planes are bombing the city. Everything got expensive 10 times at least. Uh, the city are besieged. And in the same time, when they w- if they will join ISIS, they will get like money in dollar. They will get salary, cars, houses, sex, women, whatever they want. With all the things, ISIS like try to make this siege around them to force them to join. With all that things, less than one person who, who joined like ISIS. So in our opinion, like for us, like all the time, we're like we're saying that Raqqa is not the capital of ISIS. In my opinion, in RBS's or being Iraq is the capital of resistance because what the people are doing over there, living with them, not joining them, is the most resistant in the world, in my opinion. It's resistance every day and in, in every aspect of their life. Let's talk about refugees for a moment. Georgie, could you give us the numbers on how many Syrians have fled the country? The official UN numbers say that 4.8 million Syrians have fled the country which is close to the entire population of Costa Rica. I would say that those numbers are official. And when you talk to people in the neighboring countries, you will probably hear a lot, much larger numbers. In Lebanon, people claim there are 1.5 to 2 million uh, refugees from Syria. In uh, Iraq, there's not even a number you can really talk about. Jordan has housed about a million and a half. Uh, Turkey has taken more than 3 million people. So again, the, this is their different sources and different numbers we can talk about. And then there is an estimate of 6.3 million people who are internally displaced. That's about the entire population of Libya, by the way. We're also talking about Syria that had about 22 million population before the conflict started. So it's a, it's a big mess. Again, on a very human level, it's a very na- natural reaction. What would you have done if you were in their position? Hassan, we often hear about the conflict in Syria uh, in terms of the large international players who seem to have some sort of interest there, Russia specifically and the United States, and how that relates to our relationship with Russia. What do you think uh, these seemingly non-related international forces, what do they seek to gain in Syria? So the international... uh role in Syria and even the region uh, role in Syria has become, I think, today more important than ever before. Why? Because Syria is uh, controlled by different spheres of influence today. Uh, and and that is, that's not necessarily bad news, actually, uh, if you think about, uh, about it, because it makes the grand bargain in Syria easier. Uh, if we are to be a bit uh, optimistic about this, uh, the, ro- the role of, in- of, of countries outside inside, uh, inside the region. And all these uh, factors uh, are a great opportunities, uh, a great opportunity for the U.S. to lead inside Syria. This is a way, this is a time for the United States government to uh, get, in, uh, you know, get into the game and say, you know, we need to end the bloodshed in Syria. Uh, and the priorities are uh, ending the bloodshed and fighting extremist forces uh, inside, inside Syria. And this is the only way, I think, uh, to move things forward, rather than to continue with the current 
uh, fractured nature of uh, the uh, insurgency, but also the international support to it, uh, you know, for, for different forces inside the country. So Assad stays. Instead of focusing on some long-term political transition, uh, you, c- you can focus as well on what's happening on the ground and turn these areas into uh, currency for the opposition. Uh, a way to establish an alternative on the ground rather than think about this kind of abstract transition that may or may not ha- uh, may not happen. So are you giving up on Syria as one cohesive state? The long-term solution in Syria and the change that people ho- uh, hoped for in 2011 uh, can be achieved today by helping, uh, by, by focusing on local uh, grievances and local uh, problems in different areas in Syria. And you end up, by doing that, you end up having decentralized, uh, de facto uh, decentralization in different parts of Syria uh, w- without having to deal with the, uh, with the immediate, uh, with the political questions that uh, are only complicating uh, the international effort in, inside Syria. The long-term uh, vision for Syria is uh, decentralized govern- governance. And the way to do that is to freeze the conflict so the Assad regime doesn't have to go and fight uh, in, uh, against the rebels in eastern Aleppo or in Dara and so on and so forth, but to enable, uh, and, and at the same time enable the opposition to uh, fight extremists in their areas and establish local governance. What do you think the main lessons from the Syrian civil war are for the international community that wants to support democracy and governance worldwide? Like, what lessons can we take from here and apply in other areas of the world that we need to do this work? People focused on uh, issues that would only complicate the problems, uh, the problem in Syria, rather than, for example, supporting uh, civil society, people uh, training people to become more uh, aware of abuses and uh, human rights documentation, abuses, uh, documentation of human rights abuses, and so on and so forth. I think now uh, people start to realize that this is needed in Syria. I, I still believe that the talks will have to happen and that some kind of a agreement needs to be made. Uh, but then that would also mean, what, what does the transition mean? Does it mean elections? How long until the elections? What kind of elections? What law for the elections? Is it going to be Russian elections? <laughs> or, or is it going to be democratic and free? Uh, under which constitution? Under which law? Is there going to be transitional justice? Who will deliver transitional justice? And then, with all that aside, then there is this, this completely third and insane element, Daesh, ISIS, and they're completely unaccountable, <laughs> you know, in any way. So it kind of feels wrong to ask this question, given the serious subject matter we've been talking about, and this is a little bit of a lighthearted juxtaposition. But uh, if an international time capsule were shot off into deep space, what item would we include to represent Syria? We ask this question every episode. Uh, I would put the white helmet as a way to remember the noble people who jumped into rubble and who went in after the bombs have hit to help those who needed help, those who were injured, and those who were helpless. We've been holding on to this audio for two months now, 
but we had to add it to this episode. When we sat down with Senator Graham to, to talk about Russia, he literally said, Well, let me tell you a little bit about Syria, then we'll call it a day. Uh, I appreciate IRI, what you're doing, and, and there's two things going on in the Mideast at the same time. A demand for social justice by young people. To all the people in America who wish that Saddam was back in power and Gaddafi had never been thrown out and Ben Ali and, you know, in Tunisia, you go live there. If you like it that much, you go live there. If you had a daughter that you couldn't protect, see how that would make you feel. So I don't wish for any of these dictators to come back. I wish we had done more after Gaddafi fell, helped the Libyan army and police forces rather than just cutting and cutting out. So that Arab Spring mentality is never going to go away because young people have seen through the technologies available what the world could be like. And they're not going to live in dictatorships for our convenience anymore. And young mothers are going to get tired of having their children fate determined by somebody who doesn't have their best interests at heart. And when it comes to radical Islam, the best way to destroy it is not through bombing terrorists or killing them, is empowering others. What you're doing is a nightmare for um, al-Qaeda and ISIL, empowering people to make their own decisions, giving them the tools they need to, f to fashion representative government. The biggest threat to radical Islam is a young woman with an education and a voice about her children. That's the one thing that will destroy ISIL and al-Qaeda and other forms of radical thought and you, IRI, are one of the instrumentalities that the American government has in our toolbox. Uh, and I intend to use it and um, uh, protect it. So many thanks to Hassan Hassan of the Tahrir Institute for Middle East Policy. You can follow him on Twitter at HXHassan. Many thanks to Georgi Todorovic for sharing his expertise with us and continuing to be a great friend and asset to this podcast. And finally, a very special thank you to Abdulaziz Alhamza and the entire team of Raka's being slaughtered silently for their incredible work and for sparing some time to be on this podcast. <laughs> If you have a question or comment or a suggestion on the next country we should do, uh, you can email us at podcast at IRI.org or follow us at IRI Global on Twitter. Until next time, friends. So if you're still listening... I think we should reward our listeners with a clue as to the next episode. I stopped listening a long time ago. I don't know. <laughs> you, you got uh, one, Sam? Uh, yeah. According to this country's creation myth, uh, an aging crocodile transformed into the island uh, as part of a debt repayment to a young boy who helped the crocodile when it was sick. As a result, the island is shaped like a crocodile, and the boy's descendants are the native people who inhabit it. There's your hint. Guess away. Feel free to leave your guesses in the iTunes reviews section for this podcast. And if you get it right, we'll give you a shout out on our next episode. Until next time, friends. <laughs>